Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican. I'm your host, Colleen Dully. I've arrived in Rome to cover the Synod, and right away it's proving a little difficult. Pope Francis has asked Synod participants to fast from public words, and they've been instructed in the Synod's official rules not to speak about their own or others' interventions in the Synod, even after the meeting ends. John Davis is a Vatican expert and former Rome bureau chief of Catholic News Service. He's covered numerous synods and seen how they, and the guidelines around secrecy, have evolved over time. John's also the author of The Vatican Diaries and The Vatican Prophecies. And Inside the Vatican listeners might recognize his voice from our deep dive on how saints are made. So stick around for that conversation, but first, here's the latest news from the synod. The synod has just begun its module on participation, governance, and authority. After a Mass for Synod attendees in St. Peter's Basilica on October 18th, Cardinal Hollerich and Dominican Father Timothy Radcliffe both delivered speeches that underlined how the success of the Synod would be measured by the concrete changes that come out of it. The final document of this Synod will be short, outlining some of the convergences and divergences in the Synod. It will include some open questions that will require deepening, and the Synod voted overwhelmingly to issue an accompanying pastoral letter to the people of God. Well, this timing couldn't be more perfect. We're here in Rome covering the Synod on Synodality, which will have huge implications for the church around the world. And so there's no better time to tell you about an upcoming conference at the University of San Diego that will explore what it means to be a Catholic college or university today. It's called Lighting the Way Forward, and it will look at timely topics like climate change, structural racism, polarization, and lack of trust in institutions. They're asking really honest questions that affect us all, just like the Senate is doing. This conference will take place from January 11th through 13th, 2024. The speaker lineup is amazing. Cardinal Robert McElroy, a frequent writer in America, Vincentian Father Dennis Holtschreiter, who is the president of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, and our friend and colleague Gloria Purvis, host of the Gloria Purvis podcast. For the complete lineup and to register for the Lighting the Way conference, visit their website at sandiego.edu slash lighting. That's sandiego.edu slash l-i-g-h-t-i-n-g. Welcome back to Inside the Vatican, John. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here, too, and meeting you in person for the first time. So we're going to look back at how the synods have evolved, how different popes have used them. But let's start with the Synod on Synodality happening right now across the street from where we're recording. You and I are both journalists, reporters, but our jobs have been kind of difficult so far because members have been asked not to share information about the conversations inside the hall. And in a way, the secrecy has become the biggest story out of the Synod thus far. How is this Synod different from others in terms of the Vatican's media strategy? Well, I think the Vatican is definitely taking a different approach under this Pope and for this specific synod. And I think probably part of the reason is because during the last major synod on the family, 
several years ago. Participants woke up every day to see public controversies discussed in the media. And as, as we know, much of the media focuses on conflict. And I think the participants felt uncomfortable. And I think Pope Francis felt this was not a great way to reach consensus. So it is new. And in fact, journalists at the press briefings have been rather astounded that participants are following the rules. Yeah, they're not talking. Yeah. And they're talking about generalities and process, but very, very little about content. And not surprisingly, journalists have complained. Now, this is not entirely new. Okay. Synods have always aggravated the relationship between the press and the Vatican. Even when they were handing out summaries of synod speeches and bringing people a couple of times a week for substantial press conferences, we journalists would always complain. We want more. <laughs> Why can't we have the whole speeches? I see. Why can't we have everything? And, uh, you know, we would go around muttering, what are they afraid of? Transparency in the church. I thought, I thought that was the principle. And Vatican officials would ask aloud, what more do they want? I mean, we're, we're already drowning them. We're inundating them with paper. And in fact, a lot of trees were killed back in that day. And how did the press handle like navigating those limitations? Yeah, I think reporters today are navigating it as best they can by trying to buttonhole Senate participants and writing about any topics that do come up, but they're not really focusing on the crucial issues inside the meeting. And I think in part that's also because the issues inside the meeting are so broad. The press likes hot button issues like priestly celibacy, just to take one example. Is the synod going to do something about that finally? I mean, it's an issue that has come up in almost every synod I've covered. And unless there's something specific, it's hard for reporters to, to say anything about it. Uh, so I have actually seen reporters who came thinking they would stay for the entire synod. Uh, leave after a few days. And they'll be back at the end. Hopefully, they're, they're hoping for something a little more substantial. Whether they get it or not, we don't know. Technically, what we've been told is that the Pope asked Synod participants not only not to talk about the proceedings during the Synod, but afterward. Right. That was surprising to me. It seems a little bit unrealistic. I mean, these participants are going to go home and the people they've been talking with for two years are going to want to know what happened. So I, I think certainly it'll be relaxed. In the past, we reporters have tended to write about synod blackouts, even when it hasn't been a blackout. And participants, the bishops in particular, don't like to open their newspaper and read that as the main story. Mm -hmm. So it's been the participants themselves sometimes who have said, look, we need to say more. We need to say what we're doing, give them something. And journalists, of course, are going to every single day plead yes, absolutely. to be fed. Yes. <laughs> we need to be fed. That's their message. Can we talk about the, the risks of this kind of media blackout approach? I assume you've seen this play out in the past. What can you tell us about that? I have not seen it play out to this extent. Okay. Uh, so usually we've, we've always managed to get the news get the secret documents. The difference here is that is that there's probably won't be 
uh, a major document at the end of this synod. It's going to wait another year before the conclusion of the final phase of the synod. So reporters really may be stuck um, writing about an interim meeting that does not conclude anything definitively. But there are risks here. And I think one of the risks I've seen, even in the press briefings, is that some of the questions by some of the reporters, who clearly have an agenda, are suggesting that this is all a scheme by Pope Francis to railroad through his own agenda without the world knowing mm -hmm. and without a whole lot of real debate. Uh, because, of course, the press is not privy to the debate. I don't think that's true, but I think he does leave himself open to that criticism somewhat. Yeah, that's fair. I just wrote a piece for America on synod secrecy. And one of the things that I talked about was this risk that the people who would not like to see this synodal process advance for whatever reason, synod detractors going to the press and then dominating the narrative about the synod while those who support the process, who are on the inside, will not be able to say anything. And so it, it would lead to a really skewed coverage. I mean, I think that's completely accurate. The, the danger has always been you leave a vacuum, certain people are going to fill it. And in this case, I think the critics of the Pope will and are trying to do that. Okay, so let's rewind a bit. We know that this current iteration of, of synodality is rooted in Vatican II. These bishops came together from around the world. They experienced this kind of way of collaborating, cooperating, and got to work with some of their Eastern counterparts. And so they experienced this synodality. They asked the Pope to incorporate this going forward, and Paul VI made the Synod of Bishops a permanent consultative body. But even Paul VI recognized when he founded it that the structure and the procedures of the Synod would need to evolve. So can we talk about that evolution, how the purpose and the process and who participates in the Synod have evolved over time? Right. The vision of Paul VI was, of course, to keep alive the spirit of the Second Vatican Council with some kind of a body that would allow the Pope to hear the voice of the bishops mm -hmm. and to consult with them regularly on specific topics. And that seemed to work, uh, although, to be quite honest, as the synods kept meeting and as the Pope then began writing documents about the synods, it seemed like a, not a whole lot of new ground was ever broken. And these were month-long meetings that took bishops away from their diocese for a month. And there were many people who questioned is this really worth it? I mean, if we're not advancing uh, something uh, in terms of concrete change, then why are we spending a month talking about change? Now, people sometimes ask me, well, what has ever come out of the Synod? And I've said, generally, papal documents. And these papal documents tend not to change much in the church. There are some exceptions. Pope Paul VI, in 19, I believe it was uh, 75, wrote uh, a major uh, document about the church's missionary goals, Evangelii Nuncianti. And that really was the first major document that came out of a synod. It was very valuable for the church. Pope John Paul II, he held a lot of synods that really just kind of spun the wheels a bit. In the 1985 Synod on the Second Vatican Council, the only real concrete proposal that came out of that was, we need a catechism for the Catholic Church that is modern. Well, 
it happened, but it took seven years. Got it. I also remember there was a synod on the laity in 1987, in fact. There were proposals to allow local churches to have altar girls. And the Pope wrote his document, didn't mention altar girls. Seven years later, very quietly, the Pope gave the okay. Oh, gee, okay. <laughs> so these the seeds are sometimes planted for changes that happen much later. I think Pope Francis has taken a much more urgent approach to changes. For example, after the Synod on the Amazon, he actually allowed women to be electors and acolytes in, in church ministry. And that was that was rather quick change. Uh, after the Synod on the Family, he relaxed the criteria for divorced and remarried Catholics to receive communion. That was a concrete change. And I, I think Pope Francis definitely sees the Synod as a vehicle of reform and, and wants to use it that way. Now, in terms of process, yes, the Synod has changed dramatically, probably for the better, I would say. When I first started covering Synods in the 19, early 1980s, they were basically speech fests uh, and interminable. And according to participants, a good number of people were asleep in the chairs. And in those days, the synods were not taking place at round tables where no. you could, you all eyes were on you at all times. They were in the synod hall where you, you could take a nap. <laughs> and the synod speeches were eight minutes long. That and is There are up long. to eight minutes, but almost everybody used their full eight minutes. And a lot of them had to have the bell rung when they went over. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's like the Oscars, they start playing the music. Well, and in fact, for a lot of these bishops, it was their moment on the stage. And that's something too that I point out. Synods are no longer dress rehearsals or proving grounds for people who might want to be moving up in the church. That's interesting. Yeah. And on the other hand, I'm not saying individuals are using this to make a career move, but certainly other cardinals and bishops paid, paid very close attention to what a major other cardinal would be saying in an eight-minute speech because he could develop a vision of the church. Okay, then I think it was Pope Benedict who reduced the time limit to five minutes. Under Pope Francis, it's now three minutes. So no longer do you have these very long talks. The other major change, of course, is that the synod's results have always been, from the 1970s at least, a list of final propositions. And these were considered very concrete proposals that were handed to the Pope for him to do as he wished, either work them into a document or actually make other changes in church law or church practice. So they were taken very seriously. And in fact, they were voted upon in a kind of parliamentary process. Yeah, paragraph by paragraph, right? And word by word in some cases, with heated debate. And we journalists made sure that we found out about the heated debate. Of course, yeah. But the propositions were always secret. And that meant that, of course, we had to do our job. We had to find somebody to leak the propositions. And we always did. And I can remember being handed, <laughs> being handed folders of the propositions and feeling on top of the world because, okay, now I've got a scoop and I can write about it. And Catholic News Service often did. So you laid out the, the, the changes that it's made public, but I mean, the process that you outlined is, is still my understanding of how a lot of synod documents under the Francis Synod so far have gone. Well, there is, 
I would say a process of discernment that goes on, but it's more a process of give and take, listening, evolving opinions, and it's less a process of I'm on this side, here's my position, and now we debate it, and whoever has the most votes win. It's hard to tell from the outside whether this process of discernment is really accepted by all the participants, because it requires a certain stepping back from your own strongly held positions. But that's definitely what the Pope wants. Uh, he wants a listening church, and he wants a church that's able to uh, discern its way through issues rather than debate its way through issues. And the other major change he, Pope Francis has made when he reformed the Synod in 2018 is that the final propositions, or in this case, it's not a list of propositions anymore, it's a final document. If the Pope agrees with it, he'll rubber stamp it, he'll endorse it, and then it becomes part of the ordinary magisterium of the church. That is a, certainly a new move, and it allows the Synod to share in a certain level of authority that had not been there before. And this happened to an extent in the Synod on the Amazon, right? He said you need to read both my document, Curia to Amazonia, exactly. and the final document of the Synod together. And that freaked some people out because they it said, did. you know, this this official document from the Synod has recommendations for married priests. What, what does it mean for that to be in the ordinary magisterium? Exactly. And in fact, the Pope has said, I may write my own document, I may not have to. And so again, the whole thing is geared toward listening to the people of God. Synod used to be the voice of the bishops, now it's the voice of the whole church. Well, on, on that front, the other big evolution in the Synod that almost goes without mentioning is, is the change in who participates in it, right? So exactly. we have all of these lay people now who are full voting members for the first time. We have men and women. I know that there have been lay experts in the Synod Hall before, but can you give me a sense of how that evolved? Were they there from the beginning? I know there were lay folks in Vatican II as experts. There were lay experts, and they were always, well, at least as long as I've been covering the Synod, a few were allowed in the Synod Hall, but they weren't allowed to vote. The difference here is that Pope Francis has given them a vote. And once you open that door, it's not going to be closed again, and it's probably going to expand. If you have several women participating, well, the question is logical. Why, why is not 50-50? Why, why not half? Exactly. And, and I expect that that is in Pope Francis's mind as well. So if you step back and look at the evolution as a whole, generally speaking, it's it's a wider participation. It's a much longer period of time. This synod is lasting basically four years. Mm -hmm. So it's not just one meeting. And the conclusions, mm, let's just say, they're not written in the same way. And, you know, I, for one, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. Frankly, the propositions, even though it was fun to get them mm -hmm. handed <laughs> by, by a participant and then write about them and break a story. Uh, first of all, they were written in Latin, so it wasn't all that easy. Mm -hmm. uh, although I did study Latin, and so I was in a better position than most. Yeah, yeah, I, I would be at a loss. I would be calling my husband, who's a Latin teacher. <laughs> yes. Well, it's good that some people still speak Latin. Uh, but When did the Latin go away? 
the Latin started to go away really in the 1980s. Okay. Um, by the 1990s, and of course, Latin used to be the official language of the church, certainly at the Vatican Council it was. And when I covered my first synod, I noticed that, yeah, Latin is the official language of the synod. What and does that mean? Like the speeches, those eight minute speeches were in Latin? No. Okay. Because I would but, be asleep. <laughs> but it was called the official language. Okay. And there were synod participants who spoke in Latin. Hmm. And I can remember one synod where the, the final propositions were read out in the, in the hall, not to us because we were shut out, but to participants. And the participants quickly reached for their headphones for the translations, which was logical, but the translators were not up to the task. And it was absolute chaos oh, because no. no one could understand what was going on. Yeah. And there were complaints. So... The, at the next synod, in the late 1990s, they dropped Latin. Uh, they tried to make a comeback for, the, I think, the European synod, but Latin did persist in some forms. You know, at key moments in the synod, when the relator general had to give uh, a report, it would be written officially in Latin and delivered in Latin. And again, all the bishops would reach for the headphones. It didn't make much sense. I think Latin was a way for the Roman Curia for many years to exert control. And they were the ones who generally were the Latin speakers. And they held on to it as long as they could. But eventually, uh, today, Latin has disappeared from the Synod. Saints for Sinners offers hundreds of saint medallions, all beautifully hand-painted in New Orleans. Each medal is unique, and there's a saint for everyone and anyone. For animal lovers, for musicians, for mothers, for daughters, those special in our lives. These saint medals are all wearable and make great gifts for any occasion. The saints offer guidance, perspective, comfort, and most of all, hope. These one-of-a-kind, hand-painted saint medals are tiny tokens of hope. Who's your favorite saint? Take the quiz and find your favorite saint at saintsforsinners.com. Imported from Italy, hand-painted in New Orleans. Visit saintsforsinners.com and take the quiz. Welcome back. I want to ask you more on that control question because, you know, you spoke about how these synods were often used as a way to uh, kind of hash out what was going to be in a papal document that that came out afterwards. I've also heard from Jerry, for example, that for a long time, these synod conversations were tightly controlled, that they were almost, almost predetermined. So to what extent was it, I don't know, like scripted almost? Kind of running through the motions. Yeah. I, I think that was very common in most of the synods that I covered. And so the then model- what was the point of calling one? Well... The church moves slowly, mm-hmm. voices are heard, mm-hmm. seeds are planted. And then seven years later, change, you might see something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> change evolves with patience. Uh, but the model seemed to be uh, bishops who come to the synod full of enthusiasm and full of new ideas. And they would deliver their speeches and, oh, journalists were having a heyday, even though we were only getting the summaries. Still, there was enough to work with. And then... The midterm synod report would be written, and 
gee, a lot of these more interesting proposals would have disappeared. And so for years, for example, uh, questions about why aren't women in decision-making positions of the Roman Curia would always be brought up. And then by the time the midterm report, or at least the final propositions were written, it would be gone. And that's an, an example of what I mean by seeds being planted, is that still, what you have had over the last couple of years is Pope Francis going back to those suggestions. And at least with them in mind, he has appointed for the first time women to decision-making positions in the Vatican Curia. I think he's done it three times over the last two or three years. And without you know, having to announce a major change, he's simply done it. He's the supreme legislator. He can do it. I don't know that he would have been able to do that had not these synods kept raising the issue repeatedly, even though the synods didn't conclude anything at the time. I see. That kind of complicates my narrative of synods having been like super tightly controlled. You know, it sounds like people were able to at least raise some of these ideas. I guess there was probably to an extent still taboo subjects. I'm sure that nobody was mentioning women's ordination or something like that. Even at a press briefing last week, Cardinal Joseph Tobin from Newark, who I think has done five synods, been part of five synods, uh, said that bishops would tell him, quote, I can't talk about what I want to talk about. But he said, I think any... I don't think anyone can say at this synod that they can't say what they wish. So I want to ask you, why Why would the conversations in previous synods be, be controlled in that way? Like, what was the fear there? I think the fear is that you're going to stand out and you'll be not a marked man, but uh, you'll, you'll definitely be noticed not in a good way yeah. by the Roman Curia and perhaps by the Pope. That sounds like a fear on the part of participants rather than a fear on the part of like the, the Vatican wanting to control things. Yeah, I think it's built in. Uh, when Pope John Paul II is sitting there listening to your every word, you're probably going to think twice about bringing up the issue of women's ordination, for example, when the Pope himself has definitively declared that it couldn't happen. Yeah, like what you were saying about it being sort of an audition or... God forbid, a campaign for future roles, right? This, this right. That would certainly not do you any favors. Yeah, I do think that, that under Pope John Paul II and under Benedict, bishops watch their words very carefully. I think Pope Francis has given them much more freedom. Mm -hmm. Let's kind of circle back to this question of secrecy in the media. You mentioned that, you know, this often raises complaints from journalists about, you know, why aren't you giving us more? Why aren't you telling us everything? Pope Francis in particular has a really interesting and almost paradoxical relationship with the media. Um, he's the Pope who has done the most interviews by far and like speaks very, very freely to the press. But at the same time, he's requesting secrecy here and has even asked us to communicate that quote, the Senate is life in the spirit and that the priority is to listen. So he's like, he's telling participants not to talk to us. He's right. telling us to communicate very specific things about the Senate. At the same time, he's this very open to the press kind of Pope. I, as a journalist, when you hear Francis say this, what are you thinking? I immediately thought, as perhaps you did, that this is, seems to be a contradiction. Yeah. Perhaps he's self-editing too. I don't know. I mean, he himself has not come out and talked about what the Synod is doing. Yes, as Pope, 
I want to be open, blunt, direct, and welcoming. Uh, but the Synod is a different kind of institution. I think for him it's more important that the Synod be used as a vehicle for reform than as a vehicle for free expression at this point. And he probably considers that if the Synod were wide open for free expression, that it would turn into a debating society again and the media would simply take sides, pick it apart, present it as a conflict, the church in crisis, when that's not how he sees it. And that certainly may not be how it's unfolding inside the Synod Hall. So I think his long-range goal here is to take these, this four-year period, involve local churches and lay people and people of God as much as possible, but not have conflict played out in the media. And I think he, he's willing to pay that price. Yeah, it seems like there's almost a like an inverse development here where you know, previously the secrecy, it came along with the structure in which bishops were kind of using their interventions at the synod to make their case for (laughs) why they should be in positions of leadership. Now there's this effort to clamp down media coverage because that media coverage could be used to give bishops a platform to promote their own messages. Yeah, I think the Pope clearly does not want individual protagonists coming out of the Synod and taking positions that he may then have to contradict later. Right. Yes, it was announced that the Pope didn't want participants to be talking about these things. But it was also clarified on, I think, the first day of the briefing, or the second day, that what the Pope is asking for is discretion. Yeah, well, yes. They the said it was up to each person's individual discernment. I mean, discretion, that word to me is just opens the door. Mm-hmm. And it's up to journalists to, to then push it a little bit. I mean, that's what we do, right? How do you feel about the Pope asking us to communicate specific things about the Synod? I thought that was a strange request. Well, he can make that request, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, sure. As Catholic journalists, we're open to that. We're more likely to listen to the fact that the importance of moments of prayer and reflection in this synod, it's good to note that as a part of the process of discernment. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, having heard it now every day for the last two weeks in every briefing, it's not something I would write about. No, right. It's, yeah, it's tough. There's a balance, you know, on the one hand, like we have to get our story and you can't make that the story every day for two weeks. Exactly. But on the other hand, like, yeah, it's, it's helpful for us to know where the Pope is coming from, and that is something that's worth communicating to our readers. That's part of the news story as well. Well, especially your, your uh, readers of a Jesuit magazine. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, so my last question for you is, you know, you have this, this historical perspective. It's something that you're really gifted at communicating. Um, we're often following these synods in real time, as are our listeners, but... I, I'd like you to help us take a longer view of of this synod that's happening right now. You know, what's a constructive way for for Catholics in particular to to look at this current synod in the light of history? Something that they can keep in mind while they're seeing headlines. I think Catholics need to understand that this synod is a new thing, mm-hmm. and it's not like the other synods. Mm-hmm. It's not like the other synods in terms of participation but also in terms of purpose. Pope Francis actually wants to hear from 
the people. And he wants to make them part of the process in a way that previous popes have not, in my opinion. I think in the end, the pope probably will make some changes. And I think he wants to be in a position that if he makes a change, for example, on the priestly celibacy issue, just to take one example, that he can say, I have listened to the people of God for four years here on this. This is not just a behind the doors meeting that accomplished this, but a listening process. And that's his theology. That's the way he wants to be Pope. John, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can find John Thavis's books anywhere books are sold. Again, he's the author of The Vatican Diaries and The Vatican Prophecies. John, thanks again. Thank you, Colleen. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Sebastian Gomes. Kevin Christopher Robles is our audio engineer. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, please follow us on X at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also follow me on X and Instagram at Colleen Deli. Please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Media. Just click on the link in our show notes. It's easy to do. It's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. And for this month of the Synod, you can get your digital subscription for only $1. And if you have a little time to spare, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.